Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, So um, I said last time that I'd uh, continue on the talk about uh, joy and and the practice as a a path of happiness, Um, but I'm not. It's a change of plans. That happens, have you seen? Things change. Instead, I'm going to be um, talking about fear. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of in the same ballpark. (laughs) Now, just notice, probably half of you are saying, Oh, God, give me some happiness, fear. And maybe some others are saying, Yeah, now he's talking, okay? Um... And in a way, they they do go hand in hand, as strange as it might seem. And also, just the fact of... um, You can always read the book, by the way. You can read the book or take my course if you want to get the the rest of the... It's there. I didn't do it for that reason, but uh, (laughs) that that did occur to me. Okay, well, I can get it that way. Um, but uh, things don't always uh, go according to plan. Has your retreat gone according to plan? <laughs> Did you have a plan when you came in? Oh, yeah, I know what this one's going to be about. Or I've got it all mapped out. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> you probably let go of that one by the second day. But we continually have our ideas and plans as to either how things um, should work out, hope they'll work out, afraid they'll work out. You notice coming into a sitting, you know, do you... Do you have any kind of idea or hope or maybe a little bit of expectation or, gee, it's been going pretty well so far today. Maybe we could just keep it up. Um, Whether it's a sitting or the day or now this cycle. Now I know I'm in this cycle in my practice. Okay, I went through the valley of the shadow of death and, (laughs) and now clear sailing or maybe the other way around. Um, but one thing I hope you're getting on many levels is that it's completely out of our control in, in an infinitely changing universe. It is by definition unpredictable. Isn't that right? This is called insight meditation, as I'm sure you all know. In order to have an insight, in order to have an experience of a new way of looking at things, you know that, that perspective that I'm sure each of you has touched in your own way, where you have, aha, oh, that kind of aha moment, whether it's a a small but profound aha or a big aha, wow. In order to have an insight, aha, it means that you let go of knowing or thinking you knew how it was going to be. Because if you have an idea saying, this is how it's going to be, this is how my retreat's going to be, this is how my my day or sitting is going to be, and it works out, what would be the value? Saying, I was right, you know? See, I was right. Hey, pretty clever. 
there's no insight in, I was right. <clears throat> All it does is actually just uh, reinforce a sense of I and somehow steering your experience into some little box, whether or not it's accurate or, or so. But when we truly allow ourselves to let go, we can see things fresh, that letting go of knowing. So that's what we're doing here. As you've heard over and over and over, we're learning to let go of everything, of our ideas of the future, of our control, of our doership of the experience. Because we know, we see, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's been mentioned here before, that holding on the second noble truth is rope burn. You hold on to that which is changing and you get burned. So we're learning to let go. Okay, we got that. However, even if we know, even if we know that everything is out of our control, it takes a lot of practice to truly embody and with our cellular being understand the freedom in letting go. Because, as you've also heard over and over and over, there's clinging, there's grasping, there's attachment that's so strongly conditioned that here we are practicing for one month or two months to, or a lifetime to open up to that understanding so that it's more than just conceptual, that it is a felt sense that we can truly live our life with that abiding capacity to let go. And letting go of control, of the control that we never had in the first place, but still we hold on, letting go is scary. So, of course, there will be fear that we need to encounter and address from time to time. And that is why fear is such a central issue in practice. Because any time that there's a contraction in the mind, in the body, in the heart, it is sourced in fear, I believe. And there is contraction most all the time if we're not aware, if things are going well, if it's a pleasant experience here on retreat or in our lives. Uh, certainly, if things are going well, the tendency that most people have, <clears throat> maybe you're starting to free yourself of this tendency little by little, but the tendency that we have practiced so long is to contract around experience and possess it. And if things are not going so well, is such a deep condition to contract away from experience and protect ourselves. So both of those are um, are rooted in fear, I believe. And that if we can really understand that movement of mind and heart and how it operates and how we can um, meet it with true wisdom and um, a heart of compassion and spaciousness and trust, then it's not only a rich area of practice, but it becomes our ally in practice. Fear is one of the great gifts of practice if we know and understand how we can relate to it. If we can develop a skillful relationship to it, then it doesn't have to run us. 
and instead it can be a springboard to, um, a tr- to fearlessness and to trust and confidence. If you think of it, anytime you move from the familiar to the unfamiliar, from the known to the unknown, you're going into new territory. And unless you're by nature a very adventurous type, even if you're an adventurous type, even if you love to go on, when I was growing up, it was the cyclone in, uh, in Coney Island. <clears throat> that was the ultimate, right? Wow, he's going on the cyclone, you know, that, the ultimate roller coaster, right? Even if you go on the cyclone or whatever your, the version is these days, I haven't been on a roller coaster in a little while, I mu- must confess. Uh, it's like you're getting in touch with the thrill of being scared out of your wits, right? Or maybe for a moment there's that, you know, that, that ascent up, up, up. Are you feeling it right now in your body? Up, 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 here we go. And then you realize there's no getting off, no turning back. Uh, um, I bought my ticket, I'm on the ride. Up, 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 I know it's coming next. Whoa! And it's a rush, isn't it? Because it's got that element of fear in it. And a lot of us actually like to go for that rush. Um, or we don't realize that we're getting off on the, on the rush. But it's very familiar. But anytime you go, or going from the familiar to the unfamiliar, that feeling can be addictive too. But for most of us, it's not, it's not something that we want to create in our life consciously. But anytime you're going from the, f- the unknown, it's from the known to the unknown or the familiar to the unfamiliar, you are stretching yourself. You're going into new uncharted territory. Now that's a good thing, isn't it? Especially if you want to grow rather than just playing it safe. But it means that there is that, um, that frontier that is, of course, um, laden with fear or having twinges of fear. So in that way, if you can think of fear not as a problem but as an ally because it's the scout to new territory. It's the membrane between the familiar and the unfamiliar. As Jack Cornfield likes to, to put it, I love this very succinct teaching. He says, fear is really saying about to grow. About to grow. And we all want to grow, don't we? We all want to wake up. So it means somehow coming to terms with that. And as much as we want to grow or want to stretch ourselves, we have a very strong conditioning to hold on to the familiar, even if it's unpleasant. You, know, you, ever, you ever get a, a sore in your mouth? And you're just kind of like playing with it with your tongue. You know? And you might say, oh gosh, I can't stand this sore. But there you are, just kind of <laughs> playing with it. Yep, still there. Mm-hmm. Ooh, kind of hurts. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We hold on to the familiar. My sore, you know, or my sore shoulder or sore knee, you know, or my story, that's my story. Who would I be without my story? My neurosis. What do you mean give up my neurosis? That's, that's me. I know that. You know, that can be scary to let go of our stories and our neuroses. 
my suffering. That's a big one. And if you are relating to this, just know you're not alone. This is what I'm, I'm not just giving this talk for you individually, for all of us, how we hold on to the familiar and the, the pain and the suffering just out of habit because we don't realize there's another way. Many years ago, I, um, I was uh, inspired by this wonderful teacher. Um, she's a, an art teacher named uh, Michelle Cassou. Maybe some of you are familiar with her. She, she teaches this kind of process, Vipassana on paper. And she's a, she's a good friend. And um, where you're just not letting your mind get in the way, you just go to the paper and keep on going and and she says you know if you feel stuck okay you change the color and then try then and see what comes out don't let your mind get in the way or go to another part of the paper and it's very powerful uh the painting experience she called it anyway she was um she was giving an exhibition of her own paintings and her own process and uh, she was going through a period where death was the ongoing theme that she was drawing that was coming out of her. And there was this one picture, I'll, I'll never forget it, I can see it in my mind's eye right now, where in her, in her mind, as she had done the painting, she, she, had, she had died, and she was um, um, in the coffin underground. And in the coffin, she'd been there for, for some days and weeks, uh, in this painting, as she was describing it, she was giving a a, um, a lecture on her own process, and she said, uh, "You know, in the in the coffin, along with my body, were maggots and worms, and and it was dank and kind of really gross and yucky, not very pleasant. Kind of get the picture, and and in this uh, from the coffin." there was a shaft that would go that left from the coffin through the ground through the through the sky and up to this heaven realm where there were um, it was a buddha field um, buddha images and other celestial images and she she said as she was describing this she said you know I realized all I had to do was just decide, okay, time to go up to the Buddha field. But it seemed like so much effort and I was kind of comfortable just where I was with the maggots and the worms, you know. And I, I knew just what she was talking about. Just, this is so familiar, my suffering. It's home. Even though I might have a choice to, to go someplace else, it, it means overcoming the inertia that would say, okay, let's try something new. So, holding on to the familiar, but as much as we want to or think or try to hold on, we can be assured of one thing. Change is the one certainty in life. And the Buddha said to reflect on this continuously. In, in one discourse, he talks about one of, the, one of the ongoing supports for practice is continual reflection on impermanence. No matter how good you have it, it will change. No matter how difficult it might be, it will change. An ongoing reflection on impermanence so that you're aligned with the way things are. As uh, Joseph Goldstein says, a wonderful teaching, anything can happen at any time. Can we really let that in? Anything, anything can happen at any time. Or as another teaching says, 
Fortunes change quicker than the swish of a horse's tail. In one moment, the whole game can change. In one moment, there can be a natural disaster, an earthquake, a tsunami, or a change in the economy, or a simple um, general exam that reveals something you would not be expecting. In just a moment, this week, just a, 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 a friend of mine in, uh, in Australia um, who um, shared with me that her teacher, um, her main inspiration in her life, who she was having a, a Qigong session three days before, had a massive stroke and, and died. And it was, it, was quite, it was quite a shock for this young woman. You know, and I've been kind of in touch with her since. Just like that, she said, I was just, he was in, in perfect health. Just, plant, just, just doing Qigong with him the other day. We all have had that experience. Like, whoa, that's not supposed to happen. And the Buddha says to reflect on this also every day, the five reflections. Aging, sickness, death. Everyone near and dear to me, I will be separated from and reflecting on karma. He says, reflect on this every day, not to depress yourself or get morbid, but just to inoculate yourself, to awaken to the real truth of things. And the more you do, the less you're, less you're consumed by what might happen and living in the future with fear. Just say, yes, it can happen at any time. So let's just really be here for this. Here's a um, poem that I really love uh, by Jennifer Wellwood called The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look. Everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully. Like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Wow. Let's pretend we don't know the deal here. But it's true that sometimes there can be an abrupt change and fear can come with it when there's a real shock to the system. That's one of the one of the things to really acknowledge and keep in mind when there's not time to prepare. You know, these days, 
it's it's so different in uh, in the medical world, at least in the enlightened medical world, where you tell the patient, okay, this is the operation. This is what can happen. This is this is the full picture. And when they're they understand and they're prepared, then they can kind of digest it and grasp it and be in on the healing. You know, when I was growing up, I remember, you know, you, you uh, often the doctors would keep the information from the patient. They'd be the, the last to know, you know. But it's so much different when you know and you can digest and it's not scary. I remember when, when my son was, was young, um, when, uh, as long as I would give him enough time to know the information, then he could process it. But if something as simple as, um, you're going to have a babysitter uh, tonight, and not saying two days before, you know, you're going to have a babysitter. He loved most of his babysitters, right? But it was like, I'm going to have a babysitter tonight, you know, if something came up and we just ar- arranged it. And, you know, he'd go into, uh, into a kind of uh, meltdown sometimes. And then he'd be fine. The babysitter would come and he'd be fine. You know. Or the phenomenon that we're all familiar with, a surprise party. <laughs> you ever walk into a room if ever anybody's ever thrown you a surprise party or you know you come in you're just kind of having a quiet day open up the door and there's you know 15 or 30 or 50 people yelling surprise you know that's supposed to be fun right <laughs> it scares the wits out of you surprise yeah that abrupt shock to the system happens in practice too you know when all of a sudden things are going along and even if it's a really positive experience if all of a sudden you open up to a new level of energy that you hadn't before and there can be a kind of excitation and and um joy and happiness you know and at first you think oh this is neat and then it's like a lot, and you'll say, whoa, I can remember going to my teacher saying, I think I'm going to explode here, and I was really scared, you know, and it was just a matter of just learning to be familiar with that increased energy and that that, um, new level of vibration. So it can happen at, at any time, particularly when there's a rapid change whether it's in the meditation or something comes along in your experience for the day or you see a note all of a sudden that's for you and you know, or somebody does just some simple little thing that pops your known way of being and shakes us and we can be stirred up. Then fear can also come or be present as a kind of low-level anxiety, a kind of vigilance, because we've practiced it for so long, a kind of worry. What's around the corner? If you're somebody who's prone to worry, um, you, you might see this is where the mind naturally lands, and... Um, and so there's this low-level fear that's there. I know this one well. I come from a lineage of worriers, right? My, my mother, I mentioned her at the end of the last talk, remember? I didn't mention one thing there, that um, she, besides complaining, she, um, her favorite pastime is worrying, right? <laughs> she says if she doesn't have anything to worry about, that's when she really gets worried, right? <laughs> And that you're not really putting in your time. That's often how she would used to put it. You know, you're not really putting in your time if you're not worrying, because it kind of, you know, it's it's a kind of protection. There's a Mullah Nasruddin story, uh, maybe uh, you're familiar with about Mullah 
um, did I tell this last time? No. Where, where uh, Nasruddin, this wise, mad, Sufi, uh, eccentric fool, he's spreading some crumbs around the perimeter of his house and uh, doing it very meticulously. And, and all the, his students are watching him. And finally one says, Mullah, why are you spreading those crumbs around your house? And he says, uh, oh, I'm doing it to keep away the tigers. And the student says, tigers? There aren't tigers for hundreds of miles from here. And he says, effective, isn't it? (laughs) And that's what we do with worry. It's kind of like, okay, keeping it at bay. Uh, But we're basically living in fear. And in fact, I, I, I believe that Fear is really underlying all the hindrances in in one way, whether it's worry, that's an obvious one, or wanting, what if I don't get what I what I want? This feeling of incompleteness and and um and lack. Or aversion, what if this happens? Or doubt or Dullness can also be a, an expression of, of fear. Because all of them, all of those hindrances and, and all the, the unwholesome emotions are that contraction around self. Aver- aversion, okay, well the pain is bad now, but what about five minutes from now? What if it doesn't get better? Or three hours from now, you know, or if it keeps on getting worse and I've got, you know, another week and a half or five and a half weeks here, you know, and then what we do in that, in that mindset is we contract and what the contraction is not a healing environment for opening and release. It just compounds the problem. And so there we are contracting in fear that our contraction is going to stay, which is how it stays. And it can manifest in different ways for different people, whether it's these hindrances or in different personality characters. You know, when you think about it, What's going on with a bully? There's really some fear there. It's just insecurity. Or somebody who's codependent. Or somebody who's really shy and timid. Just all different forms of fear. Mm. I, I can remember uh, teaching in my earlier years, you know, really for about oh, 10 or 12 years, there was a, a kind of apology in my mind. And, 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 you know, what am I doing in the Dharma seat? S- sometimes it, w- it would happen. And, you know, there's this thought, you know, what if they just, they find out that it's just, I'm just little Jamie from Queens, right? <laughs> yeah. And I would do you know, anything to keep that from happening. So then I would talk about it, and that would, that would usually help a bit. Fear just manifests in different ways for different people, but we all have it. All of us have it. Unless you're fully enlightened and there's, there's no sense of self anymore. Now, I remember um, a number of years ago visiting... Um, this teacher was very inspiring for me that some of us, uh, Carol and Sally, uh, visited uh, named H.W.L. Uh, Punja or Punjaji or Papaji. And w- when I went, it was, it was really amazing uh, w- what happened around him for me and, and many people when, when, I, when I was there was that uh, his field of love and... Um, Emptiness was so great that it kind of, um, that the fear, at least for a while, just vanished. 
And it was like, what's missing here? You know? Wait, wait a moment. And for different people, it would manifest in different ways. For me, it was, um, I noticed there was an absence of um, caring what anybody else thought about me. It's like, well, oh yeah, where did that one go? You know, they can think, how silly to be concerned about that. It didn't last for, forever, but, it's, <laughs> but you know, it definitely had a major shift. Sylvia Borstein was, uh, was with me on, on that trip. And for her, she, by her own admission, is, um, is a worrier. And all of a sudden, there was all this space in the mind because she wasn't worrying. Wow, how cool. And different people had different manifestations when that contraction uh, wasn't operating. So really, the absence of fear is freedom as the famous uh, book which uh, the title says it all by Jerry Jampolsky says, love is letting go of fear. That's what you have left when there's no fear. So the important thing to a few things to consider. First of all, fear is not the enemy that there are tremendous gifts in fear, that it's a natural, essential part of the process. It's the, the hero's journey. You're probably familiar, Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, whether it's the archetype of the Buddha or Jesus or uh, the contemporary model that I, I find uh, beautifully depicted is in Star Wars, Luke Skywalker, you know, where he gets, goes through his, his training, his Jedi training. All of the heroes in, or heroines in the, in the hero's journey have to, at some point, face their deepest fear. That's how one becomes a Jedi master or awakened. And it's right there in the stages of insight that when you have deep, profound understandings and then the rug is pulled out from under you and everything is becomes really scary there's what's called the rolling up the mat stage where all you want to do is roll up your mat and go home it's not bad but in that um, dissolving in that uh, the solidity of the safety um, leaving, there is a possibility of tremendous transformation. That when you face your fear, little by little, that you find courage that you didn't realize was there. And I, I can say that that is so for me. My, my most profound shift in my in my life came through the most terrifying moments I've ever been in and I didn't think I was gonna make it through and out the other side um, came a new perspective a new worldview where I actually changed I won't get into the story because there's not enough time I did write about it in the book by the way but (laughs) But where I changed, again, I plan to take it to look to say it, but it, I'm looking at the clock and I, I can't do it. Where I, I, but I did change from being a pessimist to an optimist. It's true. I was very pessimistic and just things would not work out. And it was through facing my, my deepest fear that, um, that I came through that. So fear is not the enemy. It's a natural part of the process Something else to consider. It, fear is always about the future. Always. This moment is somewhat workable. This moment generally is workable. But when the mind topples forward, what about the next moment? That's when fear gets activated. So you can think of it as a signal Oh, 
is there any hope that's going on here, for instance? Seneca has this great line, uh, you cease to be afraid when you cease to hope because hope is always accompanied by fear. Now, I start many emails, I hope you're doing well. It's not that that's a bad thing to do. But when you hope against hope, or when when it really matters, I hope this happens, you can see right embedded in there, there's um, there's an element of what if it doesn't happen. So it's a signal. Oh, I'm toppling forward to the future or a signal that there's some kind of an expectation or some kind of idea that you might have about what can happen. That's where this moment is such a refuge. Come back to the present. This is where it's safe. Wake up to what's happening now. Even if what's happening now is, oh, there's a lot of fear here. That's what's happening. Because when you make that shift from being lost in your story about the future to being right here in the present and seeing, oh, this is what's going on, it actually um, shifts your brain. You're moving from the, from the emotional state, the, 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 the limbic part of the brain, to the, the neocortex where you're just understanding, oh, this is what's going on. And here's a little piece by um, Dan, Dan Goldman, who familiar with Emotional Intelligent, where he says, um, labeling to calm the mind. Researchers in Brain Mapping Center at UCLA made a significant discovery about the value of using words to label fearful circumstances. When subjects in an experiment were shown faces with expression of anger or fear, the fear centers in their brains showed increased blood flow, indicating that their own flight-fight responses were being stimulated. However, when the subjects were asked to choose a word to describe the facial expression of anger or fear, the blood flow to the fear centers diminished. Additionally, parts of the prefrontal cortex brain area that regulates emotions showed increased blood flow. So they concluded that the activity of labeling which takes place in the higher regions of the brain can regulate emotional responses, helping you to feel calmer. That's what we do here, isn't it? Oh, scared, confused. Oh, that's what's happening. Because in that moment, you're not in the middle of the story and you're realizing you're moving it from another area that's not activating all of that sympathetic response, the flight, fight, freeze response. Oh, and there's an awareness that can understand. So there's refuge in the present moment. That's one of the amazing gifts of mindfulness that this moment is workable that's that's sometimes called the fearless the uh, the lion's roar the fearless proclamation that any moment is workable that every moment is workable to simply note and notice oh i'm still alive i'm okay in this moment and to remember it's okay and not be toppling forward to the next. This is a great gift that's right in intrinsic in fear if you can make that connection. Oh, fear toppling forward to the future. Let me come right back to now. Oh, this is okay. Another gift in fear that I have seen is that... Um, We're humbled by fear, isn't that so? And every now and then, it's okay and even healthy to be humbled. There have been many times where I've I've said, I think I got this one figured out. I think I've got my life figured out. Hey, I think um, I've been doing a lot of practice and now it's finally 
bearing fruit. Okay, it's cool. You know, I'm cool. You know. <laughs> and then the universe comes over and bops me on the head and says, oh yeah, try this one on for size. <laughs> and in that, it's different if it's happening continuously for years, you know, but... But every now and then, it's good and healthy to be humbled. It, 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 it wears away any arrogance or hubris that, that, that you might have. Because being humbled, it can either lead to humiliation and contraction and struggle and, and shame and self, or it can lead to a very healthy humility where you stop struggling and you let go and surrender and release the idea that you had the control and you realize you're not running the show. When you get to that place where it's so so much and overwhelming and you say, I give up. You know what that's like when you say, I give up. I can't do this anymore. I giving up is a really good thing. Because the ego is surrendering at that moment. And you open yourself up. How many times has that happened where you just reached what you thought was uh, a bottomless pit and you completely give up the control and there it is, life ready to hold you and support you? Has that happened to one or two of you? That's the way it works. So you're surrendering in that humility. And there's a a compassion that comes when you see how we're all in this predicament. There's a a line I I love from the Hindu tradition. Even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. No matter how enlightened they might be, one thought away, believing You've got it together. The corollary to that is no matter how lost you are, remembering is just one moment away. So it's a a binary function. You're lost? Oh, you can come back to here. And that being humbled is um, is a kind of softening that happens and seeing that how, how fear is just kind of, fear can run us when we don't realize it. I, on, uh, <laughs> I thought about this uh, in, in recent times. I, I hadn't thought about it for years. I think uh, last year it occurred to me when I was young, um, I was um, learning to ride a bicycle, like probably everyone in this room learning to ride a bicycle. And um, it was a Sunday morning and my father, my dad, who I love dearly, uh, was uh, was teaching me to ride the bike. And there was nobody, it was early Sunday morning, nobody around on our block in Queens, Elmhurst, Queens. And um, it was the magic moment where the training wheels were going to come off. And... uh, um, Unfortunately, though, I hadn't mastered braking. <laughs> this, is, this was a detail that we, we both forgot, or at least I didn't quite uh, fess up to. Anyway, there he is saying, okay, here we go, going down my street. Nobody in sight, but kept on going, kept on going. What else is there to do? And way in the distance, after a while, I saw um, some adults and there with one of the men was a baby carriage. And my mind said, when I saw the baby carriage, oh no, don't hit the baby carriage. (laughs) Don't hit the baby carriage. It was like radar. Don't, the baby carriage was the only thing in my world. How could I go anyplace else? I hit the baby carriage. 
I didn't ride a bike for about two years, actually, but now I ride all the time, so I, I did get over it. But, but that's how fear works often, that it just steers us into our worst-case scenarios. So that humility in seeing how that, that can be, and that humility can turn into confidence, that being humbled time and again, that you can see actually you're growing each time you're willing to open up to your fears. This is um, Helen Keller who says, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. All the world is full of suffering. It's also full of overcoming. You have the capacity and the courage and the wisdom and the love and awareness to hold your fear. In fact, there's something so much stronger than any fear you might have. There's something that's been stronger that's led you through all of these years of doubt or fear that's operating right now. It's got you to sit a month or two months of retreat. What is that? What is that inside? This is from um, Sri Aurobindo's um, partner, the mother, who founded uh, the community of Auroville in southern India. She says, you carry in yourself all the obstacles necessary to make your realization perfect. If you discover a very black hole, a thick shadow, you can be sure there is somewhere in you a great light. It is up to you to know how to use the one to realize the other. So think of all the important lessons you've learned from fear. How has it been a teacher for you? Would you take them back? Would you trade them? That's the hero's journey, finding that you have the capacity to open up to anything. And that's what Luke Skywalker was told by Yoda. Okay, you want to be a Jedi? You go into that cave. Here's your lightsaber and it's up to you to face your deepest fear. That's how you become a Jedi. There's the hardship, the triumph, and then you return to the world. Just in your willingness to be with experience a little at a time. It's not like you've got to slay a dragon, but just a little bit at a time and see, oh yeah, you know, oh, this is possible, I can do this. I can, you don't have to pick up 100 pound weights, you can start with five pounds, make it more manageable by letting go of knowing how you think it's gonna be or figuring out or thinking about it, letting go of all concepts, there's a, Great line in the Third Zen Patriarch. It says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. That's, that's a big movement towards trust to stop figuring out. In the letting go of identifying with experience, my fear, my neurosis, just it's the fear and realizing there's refuge in the present. So, not to let fear be in the driver's seat running the show. You can honor it, and it's important to honor it, but don't let it run the show. I have a, a little image that, that, that uh, I've used in the last few years. When there's fear here, and I just imagine for a while it's been been driving things, I take it out of the driver's seat, put it in the passenger seat, put a seat belt around it, put a helmet around it if it needs, and just say, yes dear, we really wanna honor you, but you don't get the keys to the car. 
You don't want to do away with the fear or think you should get rid of it or shouldn't have it. You honor it, but not to let it run things. And if you can start to change your relationship so that it's not an enemy, but see it as an ally, then the fear actually leads to fearlessness. As Alan Watts titles one of his books, The Wisdom of Insecurity. Each encounter, drop by drop, as the teachings say, drop by drop, the bucket gets filled. Each encounter doesn't seem like much, but every encounter with fear, where you're seeing, oh yes, I made it through, or I can do this, is shifting your relationship. And the way you process in this moment determines how you'll be processing it in the future. It affects you right now and influences your future patterns of processing. So each moment counts. There's an awareness that can hold the fear. It's much bigger. And it's both yours and not yours. The awareness of fear is not afraid. And that trust that you have in the awareness is both trusting that you have the capacity and also trusting in life. And instead of fearing the future, what starts to happen, and maybe you've had, I'm sure most many of you have had glimpses of this, where practice becomes like an adventure. When it starts to shift into, oh, wow, I wonder what this sitting is going to be like. Instead of, oh my God, I wonder what this sitting is going to be like. Oh, I wonder what this, I wonder what today is going to be like. Taking refuge in the Dharma is opening up to the fact that life is giving you what you need and that you have the capacity to meet it. And the more you do that, the more you can support others in their journey too. When you face your fears, this is a great gift that you're giving to everyone else. I remember being really inspired by um, R.D. Lang, this um, uh, great uh, psychologist um, who was actually in and out of mental institutions. And he wrote this book, Politics of Experience, a thin little book, every Every sentence counted, that one. And basically he was saying, those who've made the journey to the scariest places in the mind are the greatest healers. They're the ones who really know and can sit with being there for others in their pain and their fear. And it's always here for you. What you need is always here for you. So I'll close with this poem, another Dana Falls poem from her book, One Soul, called Here. It's always here. The silent underpinning, the foundation beneath the foundation. When I reach deep enough into darkness, inside fear, self-doubt, aversion, or despair. There's something so intact, I almost miss it in my focus on brokenness. It's always here, this ground of being. Like the water in which fish swim, it's easy to overlook the eloquence of truth. It's here, this guiding presence this calm, abiding stillness. It's here when I don't try to make life any more or less than what it is, when I stop trying to be right. It's here when I unclench my fist and breathe, when I let go of the demand to make life smooth or easy. It's here, the oneness underlying multiplicity the exquisite isness of everything. 
I could shout it from the rooftops, but it's true no matter what I say, and I know you'll find it in your own time, your own way, that precious moment when you choose to meet life exactly as it is. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.